You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. It is July 16th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and this is Meditation and Attachment, and this is the uh, intermediate or advanced class. We're continuing with our uh, exploration of the Satipatthana Sutta. I was going to talk more about uh, mind, uh, sorry, feeling tone today. But I thought I would begin with um, some uh, repeating of the reading of the uh, Satipatthana, but to move between the introduction and definition directly to uh, feeling tones or uh, feeling evadeness, the Pali word for that. Thus I have heard on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country at a town of the Kuru's named Kamasadama. There he addressed the monks thus, Monks? Venerable Sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, monks, in regard to the body, a monk abides contemplating the body, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, he abides contemplating feelings, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, he abides contemplating the mind, diligent, clearly knowing, and mindful, free from the desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the dhammas, he abides contemplating the dhammas, diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, free from desires and discontent in the world. Um... <clears throat> Really what we're talking about are Dharma maps uh, or the maps or the way to organize your practice in a way of pursuing classical enlightenment or Nirvana. nirvana. Um, there are many maps. Uh, each of the different Buddhist traditions have maps, but then most of the other major religions also have different maps to pursue. The Satipatthana Sutta is the canonical map in the Buddhist uh, tradition of uh, Theravada Buddhism. And what that means is that this is something that was supposed to be given directly by the Buddha. Even though the texts were never written down uh, at the time of the Buddha or for centuries afterwards, uh, around 300 years afterwards, they wrote this down. It was an oral tradition, so it was carried uh, orally. One of the reasons Buddhism is organized around lists in the way that it is is because it's easier to remember a list than it is to remember a text. And there's a better repetition in terms of the passing it on one person to the next. Um, here, the Buddha is describing what's uh, commonly known as the four foundations of mindfulness in the Theravada. Um, about 700 years after the Buddha, uh, there was a, a commentary written on the, the canon 
uh, called the Abhidhamma, which is more of a Mahayana text. So uh, Theravada Buddhism is the original uh, Buddhism. Uh, Chan or Zen is considered the second turning of the wheel, and that's where the uh, original text from uh, the, or the Abhidhamma arose in that second turning. The main difference uh, between the Theravada and the Mahayana is that the Mahayana take the Bodhisattva vow. So it's a philosophical difference. In the early practices of uh, Buddhism, uh, the purpose was your own enlightenment. And as it shifted centuries later uh, in its focus, moving from uh, the subcontinent of India into uh, China, and then into Japan, the shift focused to uh, refraining from taking non-rebirth until all beings were enlightened. So a major philosophical shift here. Um, and if we look at the, the um, four-path model of Theravada Buddhism, um, the first path uh, uh, is called stream enter where you enter the stream of the dharma and it's thought that you reincarnate seven more times there if you move to the second path that's called a once returner so there's one more incarnation after that once you become a third path or non-returner you no longer uh, are subject to the cycle of death and rebirth which is in the early uh, practices the, the, the end goal not to be reincarnated in the heavenly realm, in the human realm, but in one of the realms above that. When we went to Myanmar, they have a, a statue there, which is the tallest standing Buddha in the world, and it's 31 stories. And each one of the stories is a depiction of the, of the different. Uh, attain uh, different uh, uh, levels of attainment in, in, in the system of reincarnation. Um, it's a 31-story sto tall uh, standing Buddha, um, and it has an elevator. And normally what you do is you, you uh, take the elevator to the 31st level and start there, and then walk your way down. Uh, into the hell realms at the, at the bottom of the building. But on the day that we went, the elevator was broken. And so we, we decided we would walk up, and we started walking up, and uh, we went through the five hell realms and made it to the human realm, but then decided for this lifetime that was enough of walking upstairs. <laughs> so we stopped there. But they... Uh, they uh, um, in Myanmar, they make these dioramas and they, they're vividly painted and they depict all of the different things that happen. Uh, for instance, in the in in uh, one of the hell realms, if you're a meat eater, you're you're depicted in a giant frying pan frying in the fire, uh, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, but uh, if you're uh, an adulterer, or so uh, or any of the other uh, sins. Um, that are very common throughout uh, many religions. There was some particular suffering that you were subject to, which they would build a, a vivid diorama depicting. 
and then you get to the human realm and there's a, a notable absence of demons and we didn't get up to the heavenly realms and all what was up there one of the things about being um, practitioners of western dharma is that uh, our version of dharma has been very uh, culturally culturated already and uh, when you go uh, to Asia and, and visit uh, the way that it's practiced there, or even if you go uh, to some of the more cultural Buddhist centers rather than the Western ones, um, in this country you can find a wide range, uh, lots of Korean, lots of uh, uh, Sri Lankan or Malaysian. Also Indian. In the seventh century, the the Muslim hordes came into India and they burned all of the Buddhist monasteries. And so, this form of traditional Buddhism was lost in, in the place where it originated. Um, with the way that the uh, uh, current geographic boundaries are drawn, part of the the original historic uh, teaching area of the Buddhists now in Nepal, um, but it did survive pretty well intact in different parts of the world. What's so interesting about a lot of these texts is the original translations of these texts, the original uh, copies of them were found not in uh, Theravada Buddhist centers, but in Tibetan Buddhist centers. Um, the original texts were pre preserved in the monasteries there because they were uninterrupted uh, by any outside force. And so when the original teachings were carried there, they, they were preserved there as well. So let's talk then about feeling or feeling tones and how monks um, does in regard to feelings and how monks does he in regard to feelings divide contemplating feelings. Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, he knows I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, he knows I feel a neutral feeling. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, he knows I feel a word worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly unpleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, he knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. When feeling a worldly, worldly neutral feeling, he knows I feel a worldly neutral feeling. When feeling an unworldly neutral feeling, he knows I feel an unworldly neutral feeling. So I said that I would make a distinction between worldly and unworldly. <clears throat> Worldly tends to be oriented around the sense gates itself and the sensing of sense objects in the, this plane. And unworldly tends to refer to the artifacts that uh, your meditation or spiritual practice cause you to develop. So a worldly experience might be the, the, the actual sensing of sight space and an unworldly experience might be the level of concentration that you have in the moment of your practice, or uh, the satisfaction or dissatisfaction, the state of your spiritual practice or the state of your 
meditation practice in any given moment. Do you ever have the sense of frustration or difficulty that the meditation practice isn't going the way that you might want it to go? And here what you might be experiencing is the uh, unpleasant feeling tone of a dissatisfaction with the nature of your spiritual practice, which isn't related to the sensing experience, per se. In the same way uh, as a worldly experience is. So uh, what's often considered to be pleasant or neutral worldly experiences are concentration states, and what's considered to be unworldly, uh, unpleasant feeling states are the dissatisfaction that you might feel with the way that your spiritual practice is developing. These things may come up in, in the meditation practices you're experiencing them, and so you would be able to label them as worldly or unworldly, and pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But most of the time, what we're talking about in terms of feeling tone is the uh, aspect of uh, the, the sensing experience and the knowing what the sensing experience is in some sense. Um, we also live in an age of science and neuroscience uh, uh, and the tracking of the processing in a different way. When I think of this, mainly I think about mind time, um, of the, the order in which things are processed, and the speed and intensity with which you need to experience something uh, in order for you to process it. The thing about feeling tone from this perspective is it's these things are almost always unconscious, and that you don't know conscious the conscious experience of it until conceptual reality forms, and it's only through the process of deconstructing and de-engineering or reverse engineering the experiences that you have that you're aware of the quality of this. But you have the capacity to sense something, you have the object to, sen to sense, and when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. And those three things are required for the experience of feeling tone to arise. Without those three things, there is no feeling tone to experience. The object that can be sensed by the sense gate when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises, and that creates contact, right? that there is an actual experience of contact, and that experience of contact is available, evaluated for the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality to it. What you notice is that almost all of the sense gates are neutral in their feeling tone or Vedna quality. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling uh, are all considered to be always neutral. It's only touch that can be both pleasant and unpleasant in addition to neutral. Um, I would actually investigate that, though, uh, to see whether that's how you experience it. Because I sometimes experience a very bright light as unpleasant or very harsh or, dis, dis, uh, or loud sound. That the, the sensing experience itself is 
<clears throat> the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense when they meet, the consciousness of that sensing experience arises. If all three of those are present, contact has taken place, and that experience of contact is then evaluated for pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Uh, it's an astounding thing to consider that 2,600 years ago, this piece uh, would be identified in uh, people's meditation practice when, when uh, we are just beginning to understand in the last 30 years the different processing speeds that the mind does and the um, evaluations and how that affects the way things happen in the experience of the creation of consciousness. In the, and this science is pretty good because it's been well replicated. Um, depending on the intensity of the sensation, the, the mind evaluates it for uh, needs urgent attention, doesn't really matter, and pleasant if, time, if there's time. The reason I say that is because uh, dangerous or urgent material requires half the intensity of, uh, of uh, so half the pressures or intensity uh, to be tracked and sent into uh, conscious awareness. And also the duration is, is less than half or around half. So three-eighths of a second of duration and half the intensity will produce an unpleasant feeling in the mind. Um, and unpleasant feelings always supersede everything else in the queue so if you have a queue of mind moments that's waiting to be processed into conceptual reality, anything unpleasant or urgent will supersede that so that you can get into these very negative uh, uh, tracks of experience because the negative is always superseding the neutral and the, the pleasant. I would bet that the pleasant supersedes uh, the neutral. And so there's almost never time or bandwidth to process the neutral experience. So it's all, almost uh, never uh, in uh, conceptual reality. Some of it is, but when we compare the bandwidth of consciousness, which is 16, to the bandwidth that the body-mind can track, 11 million per second, 16 of 11 million is a very small piece of that. Um, is that making sense so far? The reason that we want to pay attention to this is because the that quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral affects what information ends up in uh, our conscious awareness. Um, and Vedna or feeling tone is on the absolute or ultimate reality side, not on the conceptual reality side. We have a sensing experience which is undifferentiated sensing. So if you were to look at the sensing experience of the eye without fixating it, it would be a, a, a field of colored dots basically swirling with no fixation and no definition. Um, that's pure seeing. That tends to be neutral in its uh, capacity. It then 
enters into the process of perception, which is compared to the database of things that we have recognized in the past, that we find a close enough match, the undifferentiated, unfixated, unattached sensing experience becomes attached and becomes a representation of that sensing experience as we have been conditioned to know it. Um, what's important to really understand is that we take the data in, we process it, and then we project the world out. Uh, we can, uh, I think the untrained mind can often think that the world outside is being represented, but actually the world outside is sending us data and then we're converting it into a, a, a conceptual framework that we then project out onto the world to, to make it uh, uh, into something that's recognizable and often we prefer it if it has a, a quality of safety to it or familiarity to it. It can be quite disconcerting to think that you don't perceive what's actually out there. Uh, you perceive uh, a representation of what's out there that you've generated internally based on your previously experienced uh, life or conditioning is the best word, I guess, and then what you can imagine. And also understand that part of the process of doing this is the thing that you decide to do in response to the way that you've created the perception of things. This is vitally important because that intention and action creates uh, a response uh, from the world that we then have to deal with as it comes back to us. And that conditioning also inclines uh, us toward particular versions of reality or particular, particular versions uh, that we can uh, entangle with and understand. An example of it, that might be the English language. How easy it is it for you to detect somebody that speaks English versus somebody who doesn't speak English? Uh, and are you aware of that process that you go through in order to identify? And how does your demeanor and the, the capacity to connect to somebody who speaks English differ from your capacity um, not uh, with somebody who doesn't speak English? The reason I'm using English is because I'm speaking in English, and in order for you to have any uh, understanding at all of what, what the vibrations of my of voice box mean, you have to be able to entangle with of the English language, which means you have to be conditioned to identify the sound vibrations and make them into a, a, a word that has definitions that you then need to be able to assign. And then you need to be able to string them together to understand that uh, complex meaning associated with it. And if you weren't trained to do that, it wouldn't mean the same thing uh, that it would if you can. And if you use that as a, as a template in all areas of interaction, engagement with the world, 
that same uh, kind of process is happening. If you can recognize it and assign meaning to it uh, and understanding of how to operate in that particular uh, framework, then it's easier to entangle and you react much differently than, than you do when you don't have that uh, conditioned response. Um, we often um, react to things that we don't understand uh, or that we can't operate or that seems strange to us with an apprehension and a fearfulness. Whereas things that look familiar, we, we, we easily uh, adapt to. So what we're really trying to understand in our practice of meditation is that process and how that happens so that we can move out of what uh, can happen easily is that we lose the awareness of the present moment and slip into the uh, database or the past, and that the present moment becomes limited by the database and our capacity to imagine something, and that all of the uh, possibilities in the present moment are lost, except for the ones that we already have uh, in our database or our capacity to understand uh, or imagine something. One of the things about imagination is that it, well, you know, when we are born and it's open and quite subtle and vast, uh, things that we can't get that we want often causes us to pinch off or begin to restrict the capacity to imagine. And so we can become quite tightly uh, contracted around what our perceptual database is. And as a result of that, miss a whole range of potentialities that exist in each moment that if we could see them and come out of that limitation, we would know were available to us uh, just for the taking, rather than some explanation about why we can't get those things that we might want. That all making sense. So we want to begin in this uh, early investigation to track uh, that ordering sequence. We looked at the body, so we have the sensing experiences, the five senses, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and then the sixth in Buddhism is mind, which is that ordering uh, activity of what your attention is drawn to, and uh, then the collection of the mind moments, which are then uh, compared to the perceptual database and converted into our experience of conceptual reality. Things that the sensing experiences um, are learned and what we make them into are learned. And uh, I'm talking about feeling tones and it's often described in the literature as something that's easily separable from what happens next which is the process of mind, um, which is organized more around uh, what you make the thing into and whether you want that or you don't want that. Most often the sensing experience, it, purely sensing experience is in, in itself a neutral experience, except for some kinds of physical touch. But the, the thing that you make it into, that 
that conceptual reality can go from uh, equanimity to uh, craving, aversion, unconsciousness pretty easily, which is the next piece of mind. And it can be very difficult to separate them out. If you have an unpleasant sensing experience, it's easy to immediately associate that with something that you don't want, an aversive feeling. And an example of that would be going to the gym and vigorously working out often is accompanied by an unpleasant sensation of touch that's at the feeling tone level, which then creates an aversion in the mind level. And so you may think that you don't want to work out because the, the, the experience, the physical experience of doing it is, is so unwanted. even though you may later like the effect that that has on the body, so that there's a pleasantness that's associated with that later, or a, a, a craving. And so we don't want to let the mind slip into an evaluation of craving, aversion, and consciousness, and equanimity that would be at the mind level when we're doing this practice today. We want to stay in the feeling tone. Uh, so evaluating the actual sensing experience itself without making it into something. Um, and so um, we're going to do a basic see, hear, feel technique and then add to that a second level of investigation of feeling tone. And what I want you to do, because this is going to be a reverse engineering of this, not pay attention to whether you like the experience of conceptual reality that you've made out of the sensing experience, but see if you can feel into the actual experience of sensing. So if you notice that your attention is drawn to visual thinking, ignore the content of visual thinking and see if you can touch into the actual experience of what it's like to sense uh, internal visual experience. If you hear something, don't evaluate whether you like what you hear in terms of content, but pay attention to the sensing experience of it. What is it actually like to sense the, the sound uh, vibrations? Is that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? Uh, as you notice uh, the, the skin, say, uh, the temperature of the skin, um, in evaluating that, not so much whether you like the temperature that you're experiencing, whether you're cold or hot or in, in, in a comfortable place, but what is the actual sensing of temperature like, the physical aspect of it? If you notice a, a dissatisfaction with the, the quality of your period of meditation, can you notice the feeling, the unworldly feeling aspect? If you um, have a sense of being very well concentrated and the meditation is going really well, can you sense into the pleasantness or the neutrality of that experience? Is that making sense? Are there any questions about that before we do our uh, meditation practice? So how did that go?
understanding and then a feeling of compassion and then kind of a, a, like a zen kind of enlightenment feeling uh-huh. so negative turned kind of positive good <laughs> felt more yeah it very nice. good yeah there's an openness to to watching how you make things up it's an interesting conundrum once you understand that you really do take in the data and then generate this sort of presentation and then project it out, uh, and that there's a wide range of how you can do it, uh, often the initial response to that is a kind of frightening experience. But then, um, you know, the truth is you can still use the representations as a way of navigating the world in the same way you always did. It doesn't, that's not the part that changes. The part that changes is the rigidness around the interpretation. And so you can begin uh, to move quite easily in that back and forth between one version and another. Well, good. Arthur? Hey, George. Hey. Clarification on sensing uh, or the feel. Um, is there such a separation between the content of the feel and the experience of feeling, or is that one just the same? Like, I, I guess I feel like almost every time I feel something, it's of a negative uh, bedna in terms of unpleasant bedna in terms of like pressure. Um, but I don't think I have experienced a separation of, you know, you're describing in terms of content versus the uh, the actual feeling itself. Right. So if I were to ask you to track the temperature that you're experiencing on the skin, could you do it? Yep. And um, do you like the temperature? I mean, is it a comfortable temperature? Is it too hot, too cold? Okay, it's basically neutral. Okay, so it's fine. The temperature currently is fine as you're experiencing it as the as temperature. Can you uh, um, feel into, so this is the Vedan aspect, can you separate what the actual experience of sensing the temperature is rather than determining what the temperature is and whether you like it or not? What is the quality of the sensing on the skin that is just the activity of the sensing of it, not that it's temperature or that you like it or you don't like it? Do you have... Okay. Sort of. Yeah, go on. 
Uh, do you have much visual thinking? No. Um, do you have much auditory thinking? Yes. So close your eyes and see if you can hear the auditory thinking. Yep. And so uh, can you make out the words and their meaning? Yes. So set that aspect of the internal auditory experience aside and see if you can touch into just what the quality of the sensing is. Yeah, so it's possible for hearing um, in terms of the content versus the sensing itself, which is just like sort of intermittent pressure feeling. Um, right. I guess for the body, I'm just confused by why it's almost always like the same. There's, there's almost no separation there for um, the feeling. I think that in the beginning of practice, it's always a question of resolution. How um, Shinzen used to use the microscope thing. You look at the, the little droplet of pond water and it looks clear, and then you put it under a microscope at times 10, and you can see little pieces of uh, um, plant life. You put it on times 30, and all of a sudden you can see little moving dots, which are bacteria. You put it on times 100, and you can see vividly what the uh, bacteria looks like swimming around. So in the beginning, we, we just bring our attention and, and we begin to try and make these determinations. And in the beginning, they're not apparent because we can't recognize the patterns. But the more that we do the practice, the more distinct that they become. And then the easier it is to tell them apart. And then you're in more and more subtle experiences. So what, external sound space is often easy to determine. You have the, the sound and what, it, what you make it into, but then you have the quality of just the experiencing of the sound and whether that's the sensing of it is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It can be, uh, the reason that sound can be unpleasant might be because you included it as a, a pressure. Pressure is one of the things that can be unpleasant. Is that making sense? So it's a process of reverse engineering everything when you're trying to, to pick it out. We want to be able to track all of these things happening at the same time, but in order to do that clearly, we need to separate them out and, and develop a sensitivity to them individually so that once we can discern them individually, then we can watch the whole process, the whole interaction that creates conceptual reality. And when we've done that, then we have a chance of determining whether or not the way that we've created the sensing experience into something is an accurate reflection of what's happening or it's distorted by uh, some, uh, we would say, delusion in, in terms of an equanimous accurate presentation of a deluded one. Does that make sense? So uh, in the beginning, Nobody really can do it, and then you do it, you practice, and then you begin to develop the sensitivity to it, and then as you practice more, you can see these things quite clearly as they happen. Good. Gotcha. Someone else?
So I thought we've done several weeks of the Satipatthana Sutta, and I thought that next week I would talk about uh, attachment theory, and in particular the three pillars approach to working with it and do some ideal parent figure meditation. I've had a, a number of requests for that. And then I think that the week after that, we'll do some metta practice so we don't uh, lose our, our capacity for that and then go back and do the uh, the third and fourth pastures of the Satipatthana Sutta, namely mind or sita and uh, then the dhammas. There's quite a number of lists in the dhamma section. I, I'm, we may or may not do them all depending on interest. Um, I am doing a retreat this weekend, um, which is sold out. Um, but if you've never had a retreat experience and might want to try a day of it, if you uh, join the uh, Dharma Maps uh, class, uh, you can sit in on Saturday uh, and do a one-day retreat. The retreat starts at seven in the, uh, 7.30 in the morning and ends at 9.30 at night. And there's periods of instruction and periods of sitting. Um, but if you've never had a retreat experience and might like to see whether that's something that you would enjoy or something that would benefit you and you want to do just one day of it, uh, it will be open on Saturday for people who are part of the Dharma Maps class, which you can find on the same page of the website as this class. Um, this uh, uh, fall, I'm going to be doing uh, a series of day-longs on level one, so the meditation and attachment level one classes. If you wanted to uh, take a look at that, um, it's a prerequisite for the level two class where we currently have a level two class going, which will finish this fall, and then um, toward the beginning of the winter, we're going to start another level two class. So if you're interested in the meditation and attachment material, that would be a good place do it. We're going to continue with the Dharma Maps class. So every third Saturday, uh, we'll do the Dharma Maps. We're doing the progress of insight the, that Mahasi Sado wrote a commentary on. And that's a different Dharma map than the Satipatthana Sutta. It's the one that I teach more often, uh, um, uh, mainly because uh, the progress of my own practice before I was aware of what the Dharma maps were, uh, followed that uh, path uh, or that path of instruction very closely without me um, even knowing what it was or being instructed in it, um, and quite different than what the Satipatthana did. We're going to do a retreat uh, at the end of the year as well, so that if this retreat doesn't, uh, you can't join this retreat, but if you wanted to do some retreat practice, we're going to do a retreat um, over New Year's, a five-day retreat. So it would be the 30th of December through the 2nd of January. And we'll open the registration up for that pretty soon. I offer the teachings for this class uh, on a Donna basis, which means I, I give the teaching freely. Uh, and then we have the hope that if you if you have the capacity to make a donation to myself and to Metagroup so that I can support myself and also so that Metagroup can continue the work that we're doing, that's very much appreciated. Any amount is fine. You can find a link to make a donation on the website uh, in the same paragraph that the 
information about this class is. Um, if you're if you don't have resources or don't want to make a donation, that's that's fine. But we do really rely on them to keep going, and it's very much appreciated. We will see you uh, either next Tuesday for the beginner series, or, or uh, Thursday. I hope uh, to talk about attachment theory, one of my great passions in life. Thank you so much, and we will see you soon.